English is the language on which we do research, so let's try to make it accessible. This exam penalizes sometimes choices of words or an accent or things like that, that are just like completely natural if you're not bilingual in the language. And it is insanely expensive. If you have 15 people in your group and none of them are women, then he's not going to take me. Like, I'm not even going to bother applying. You can be whatever you want to be. But it is really, really hard to be something that you don't see, that you cannot see, that you don't see yourself represented to. You can, of course, you can do it. You can be whatever you want to be. But if you don't have any role models or any representation, it is going to be harder. Disclaimer. What you're about to hear represents the thoughts and opinions of the participants at the moment of recording. We reserve the right to change our minds. All animals are created equal, but some animals are more equal than others. A quote by George Orwell in the book Animal Farm. This episode, I bring a conversation with Julia Maristani. She's a PhD student at the University of Cambridge in England. Here, we discuss an interesting article that she wrote about the dominance of the English language in science and academia and some of the issues that come with this. We explore some ideas related to equality and also talk about her research in molecular biology and quantum information. The link to her article can be found in the description of the episode. Hope you enjoy it. So is it Julia or Julia? Oh, I go by both. My name is Julia. That's my Spanish name. But a lot of people in Canada and here in England just call me Julia because that's the most, you know, common name for them. So at this point, I go by both. Yeah. But my name is Julia. It's the Spanish name. Originally, it's Julia. Yeah. Originally, it's Julia. I know some people from Spain that their name are Julia, actually. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, you know, you don't know what is exactly the actual That is that. Even if it's Spanish speakers. That is very true. That is very true. Yeah, yes, yes. Particularly, I think if you're, I'm not quite sure about this, but I think uh, people from Catalonia also would pronounce it um, Julia. Yeah, 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 probably. The J is not her. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's it's Julia for the Argentine way, Uh, not the Spanish, the Argentine way. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If it's possible, can we start by you introducing yourself? Like, what do you do? Uh, who are you? What are you up to? <laughs> yes, of course. So, uh, well, my name is Julia. I am uh, currently a PhD student here at the University of Cambridge. I am currently working on biophysics in the group of uh, Dr. Rosana Colepardo. We work on liquid and studying liquid-liquid phase separation inside of uh, cellular organisms. But I come from a quantum computing background. I did Uh my master's together with a group in the Institute for Quantum Computing at the Perimeter Institute Uh back in Waterloo, Canada. This is in the University of Waterloo. That's where I did my master's. And my licenciatura, licensiate degree, I've done that back in Argentina, where I am originally from. Uh So yeah, so I come from Argentina. I studied a little bit in Canada, a little bit in here in England, a little bit in France. so a little bit of everything. Yeah, you know, I've been very um, fortunate to have the opportunity. So, so I, I am very thankful for that. That's really nice. So, but I mean, I know you because of some other very different topic. I was talking to my friend Nayeli and then she introduced me to you and said, oh, look at this uh, article. Uh, it's, it's an, isn't that interesting? And then, then I, I read it and 
I asked her, do you think she can be on the podcast? And she's like, yeah, I've been, let's let's see if we can make this happen. And well, thankfully it happened. But your article is about, well, let me see if I can rephrase. It's about the monopoly of English in academia and some of the issues that it may cause um, the students in yes. particular. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. It was very kind of you and Ayali to think that the article was interesting. That was a bit my idea. I wanted to talk about, well, I think it's undeniable that English is the linguistic ruler of academia in the sense that everything we do in research at the end of the day is going to either be published in English or you're reading a paper that's written in English. or And I think that there are a couple of aspects of that reality that sometimes are overlooked when talking about the well-being of the student body. Um, For the one hand, learning English is not really accessible to everybody. Uh, So I feel like there is a lot of people who lose access to academia because learning a language is so expensive and time consuming and, and you have to really be quite privileged to be able to do it. And on the other hand, once you learn the language, it also comes with its challenges to be doing research in a language that is not your native one. So I was coming from that place of just wondering if, you know, maybe trying to continue the conversation of how inclusivity looks like when thinking about um, a language. Yeah, because it doesn't seem to be a problem or more like a topic that has a very straightforward solution, right? Because yeah. it's even like after reading your, your article, it seemed to me that it was really hard to point out what was the problem itself. Yeah, it's not much that it's a problem as much as it's a reality that creates inequalities. So I'm not advocating for, oh, let's do research, all of us in our native languages. I feel like that will come with its challenges. It's really hard to, you know, communicate to other people. But my point was more towards the, okay, we have to acknowledge that our reality right now creates inequalities for some people. So trying to make, for example, language more accessible or for universities to put less barriers for international students when it comes to language. That could be one way of addressing something, a situation that, you know, creates inequalities. But it's really hard to say this is wrong about it because it's hard to tell how English came to be in the position of having such a monopoly on research. And yeah. Um, that is not my field of expertise. I am not a language historian. So I don't know how that happened. It's probably a combination of, you know, English is the language of the United Kingdom and the, the United States, which are very powerful nations, plus a lot of aspects having to do with technology, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the point as much as, okay, this is the reality we have right now. English is the language on which we do research, so let's try to make it accessible. If we're talking about universities in countries that do not have English as a first language, offering English courses could be a way of addressing it. If we're talking about universities in places where English is the native language, then putting less barriers of entry. For example, stop asking for the TOEFL exam or stop asking for you know, so many different requirements before the students can actually access to the university resources could also be another way of addressing the issues that having a single language in academia poses. Yeah, I think my goal was mostly to continue the conversation. I'm interested to hear about what other people think about it too. <laughs> um, yeah, no, because it is really hard to even conceive a plausible solution for it. Because, I mean, as you point out in the article, it is not that having a language where we communicate is a bad thing, right? Of course, uh, of course. It, we can argue that it makes it easier for everybody to have a universal language, have this, the, the name of this language that people wanted to make it universal. 
I don't in Spanish is Esperanto. Um, Esperanto, yeah. Esperanto, having, yeah. So having that utopical language, well, I mean, in a way, is we can say, well, it's working, and why would we change the way we're doing things, right? Yeah, yeah. But the other part is that well, we went through quite a lot of pain and some issues as native speakers of another language in yeah. order to make our transition into an English-speaking world. And I think it is true that in a way creates some inequalities. What I would like to have your opinion is that, do you think it is, or can we explore, like, for example, if there is another solution, what are the possible issues that we will find? Yes. Know, for example, in a setup where everybody speaks their own thing, right? What are the possible issues? Something that I, for example, found is that uh, I've seen some articles in my area that are written in Chinese. Yeah. Because now the, the academia in Chinese is looming. It's kind of yeah. having their own, it's growing, so it's getting their own audience, right? Yes. So from Spanish to English, and now we have to like find a way to find that information accessible from Chinese to English or from Chinese to Spanish. So what are the problems that we can that that thing creates? Well, I have a few thoughts about that. I think obviously having a single language to do research on has the advantage of you can quite easily share research, right? Like you say, if you have like a group, for example, working on something in Russia, a group working on, on a similar thing in China and a group working on a similar thing again in Mexico, if all three groups communicate in English, which at this moment is the most common language to communicate on when you're doing research, then there is the opportunity for more collaboration and for more effective research. Um, I feel like if each country were doing research in their own native language and, and a little bit more you know, close with less opportunity of actually sharing the results, then there will likely be a lot of overlap, a lot of people working on the same thing and arriving to. So in a way, I would say it would be a bit less effective. And I think collaboration in science is vital. And I believe that international collaborations are actually quite important because you come from different places with different backgrounds and different ways of doing science. So the science is richer by, you know, uh, having people from different nationalities and different cultural backgrounds working together. Right. And English provides a way of doing this and having everybody working on their native language without an easy way of communicating between different groups, uh, it would hinder that. So that would be one of the main problems of having, you know, like a bubble tower yeah. style of, of academia. Another one, I mean, we've had it in the past, right? If you think about a about hundred years ago, um, when yeah. well, like, it was the beginning of, of quantum theory, uh, when Einstein was publishing his most influential papers on general relativity, even at the end of Marie Curie publishing about radium and polonium. So if you think about, you know, the early 20th century, when Marie Curie published in French, Einstein was publishing in German, it was a lot more polyglot. I think that there are several stories, particularly within physics, of physicists studying in the U.S. or mathematicians studying in the U.S. and arriving to, you know, a theorem or a conclusion. And then about 50 years later, they realized that somebody in Russia had uh, already discovered that. Yeah. Um, so, and then we have these theorems with multiple names, right? The, the theorem from Borgov and someone else. Exactly. So in a way, you're, you're arriving to the same conclusion by independent studies, which in some ways it's useful when you're doing experimental research, I guess that you want your research to be reproducible. But when you're doing things like mathematics, if you're proving a theorem, then you just kind of want everybody to know that that theorem is proven so you can like build from there. 
So those were definitely issues of having polyglot academia. So I think that right now, I wouldn't say that having a more polyglot academia is necessarily going to have less problems. But mm-hmm. I think that I would insist that, okay, because we need a language to communicate on and because of the way that things have developed so far, that language is English and deciding that that language is English seems to be, you know, quite like a universally accepted truth at this point. Does not mean that we cannot try to make it better in the sense that more accessible to. Yeah. Something that like a related problem to that, I think, is because it's not only on academia where it happens, the yeah. the monopoly of English, right? It's just academia is a place that it manifests. But we can see it in movies a lot of the time. Uh, we can see it in sports. Sometimes it's the nomination of English as the language that everybody tries to communicate. It starts growing. And we can see it in many cultural places where I think probably in Europe, most of young people communicate in English. And in my personal opinion, that was kind of nice. <laughs> because mm. at some point, for example, I went to Shanghai and it was really nice to have being able to kind of roughly communicate to the barista, you know, I want a latte. And he kind of understands this. Okay. With the few words in English that we can share, that was very useful. So this is probably one of the points that I wanted to explore more from your article, because that's the point of view that I had a little bit uh, contrary to yours, because or that I thought I was like a, mm. not in the same direction. That in my own opinion, I, I thought it would be nicer to make it more accessible instead of uh, trying to to segregate it. Yes. Or, no, yeah. I actually agree with that. I think that that is the way to go at this time is instead of breaking yeah. it up and saying like, okay, no, we need to we need to break the monopoly of English. I don't think that is realistic. And I, I think that that would come with different problems. I think that at this point, yes, exactly. a better use of effort would be to make it more accessible, to create more language courses, to create more opportunities for inclusion of people that maybe don't have... Because, you know... Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the TOEFL exam. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Because <laughs> virtually everybody coming from a, a country where English is not the native language and you want to study in, in a university in, for example, um, the US or Canada, you need to take this standardized exam that kind of just like marks your, your ability to speak the language. And I think that this is bad for so many reasons, not only because there is no single standardized exam that can quantify your ability for a language at all. Um, This exam penalizes sometimes choices of words or an accent or things like that, that are just like completely natural if you're not bilingual in the language. Yeah. And it is insanely expensive, insanely expensive. It costs... It costs about $200, and for a lot of countries in Latin America, $200, it's very comparable to, you know, the minimum, like the monthly minimum wage. So, um, And all the ads are like 50 bucks. Yes, exactly. If you want to send it to this school, if you want to send it to this other school, every single little thing that you want to do, like it's another $50. And it is absolutely inaccessible. It also expires every two years, which is just like, I don't understand the rationale behind behind having a test whose results expire every two years. Like you're going to like not have that knowledge anymore. Okay. I, I, yeah. I, I don't. So I think things like that are the things that we need to target right now. They yeah. come from the yeah. fact that English has this monopoly in academia, but that is just sort of the underlying 
reality. The issues come institutionally. And I think that those are the ones that need to be changed. Because, I mean, we can discuss utopical things like, oh, what would be best if we do research like this or research like that? Would it be best, for example, to not have borders anymore and everybody can move from country to country? Like, yes, like we can utopically discuss a lot of things. But uh-huh. I feel like to create more meaningful short-term change, we need to be pragmatic. And I think that's something yeah. that is quite realistic that could be an impactful change would be, for example, to stop asking for this exam upon admission. This would be like, for example, one of the things that I think I talk about in the article that, that can help. To change that we evaluate like, yes. how proficient Yes, exactly. So I think that a lot of universities, particularly the ones that have more uh, resources and more money. So when you apply to a university in the US to do a doctorate or a master's, then you are paying for the TOEFL exam. You're paying uh, for the GRE exam, which is the graduate record examinations exam. Um, uh, Typically, you do the general exam and then the subject exam. If you want to do physics, you do the physics. If you want to do mathematics, you do the mathematics one. The GRE exam is luckily being, I think, considered less and less as a measure of likelihood to success. But in any case, I'm going to add it for now because so far, this is what students have been asked to do. The TOEFL exam, the general GRE exam the subject exam plus the fee of application. So if you apply to about 10 schools, if you want to apply to about 10 schools, then you're looking at a couple thousand dollars of money in application rounds. And it is more expensive for international students and it is more expensive if you don't speak English because you have these extra exams that you're asked to take. So I think that, yeah, a good step towards inclusivity would be to stop asking for things like that. I think about the GRE and the TOEFL, I, it seems to me that these are counterproductive uh, ways to measure the ability of a student in the corresponding things that they're meant to test. Oh, of course. Yes, yes, yes. These exams show nothing. This can be extended to the GRE exams, but in particular, the TOEFL exam. If I look, for example, at how I studied for the TOEFL exam and how I managed to pass it, to add it to, you know, my application package to do a master's in, in Canada. I went to a private tutor and I just spent a lot of time doing practice exams because it was less about my ability to do English and more about my ability to answer multiple choice questions fast or to just yeah. know exactly the kind right. of thing that the exam wanted me to know. And, you know, so that kind of thing just like blatantly shows my privilege of, I had the time to do that. I didn't have to work while I was in school because I was living with my parents and they supported uh, me financially. So I had the time to be able to take practice exams every day to be able to pass it. I had the financial freedom to be able to hire a private tutor to just coach me on how to answer the questions for the exam. And I had also the freedom to take the exam in 2016 when I needed it. And then again in 2018 after it expired (laughs) when I needed it again. Um, So that is an insane amount of privilege that I feel like if I look back to just a lot of people back in Argentina, which is where I come from, I don't think like a lot of people work while they're doing their degree. A lot of people just do not have the ability to pay for a private tutor. I was very, very lucky that my parents could with a lot of effort because you know my parents have a teacher Uh salary but with a lot of effort but they could afford to do that but not everybody has 
that reality. And that is the bit where I feel like academia is so inaccessible in so many ways. And I think that my point with this article is just to show, hey, by the way, language is just one more of the thousand ways in which academia is really, really inaccessible. Yeah. Maybe maybe there is something we can do to help out a little bit. Yeah, I think sometimes that uh, one-to-one interview with whoever, with the applicant, yeah. will be a lot, a lot easier way to measure exactly. how proficient that Exactly, exactly, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking about. So um, when I applied to Cambridge, for example, they asked me, I don't really remember the details, but I remember that me having done a one-year master in a Canadian university and having a TOEFL that had been expired already, that was not enough to show language proficiency. So they asked me to do another exam. And I wrote to them asking them if they could please waive that requirement because it was just already too expensive and I was very financially stretched at that point. And they offered an evaluation of my English skills from the university. Like the university language department was going to evaluate my English skills and I didn't have to do the exam. And once again, I was quite lucky that I was applying to a university where they could actually offer me that and they were very flexible and understanding to offering me that. But I feel like that should be the rule, not the exception. Yeah, you had to go and ask for it, right? It's not I, a, yeah, yeah, know, yeah, I had to ask for it. Openly, they, ask, they offer you, you know, there's this option and this other option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, like, I'm very grateful to Cambridge that they did offer that. But I feel like in general, for most of the universities with as many resources as this one, it, it should be this is the standard rule. Most universities offer interviews to applicants. So you can use the interview to assess the applicant communication skills. And and perhaps, you know, don't weigh in communication skills so incredibly highly. Because the first time that I went to Canada, it was my first time going to an English speaking country. Uh-huh. And I feel like my first few weeks I was really struggling with the language, but you know, you catch up quite quickly. So like if you're fully immersed in a different language you and you have some background in the language, you can catch up really quickly. So within a month, I was having fluent conversations and being able to actually conduct research in English. So I feel like that also should be taken into consideration when, you know. You know one can become more and more fluent when you're actually required to do it. Exactly, exactly. So. A little bit of leeway for international students. So like, okay, maybe, you know, you're not 100% perfectly fluent, but of course you're going to get better as soon as you like, come here. And yeah. or... Sometimes it's, you know, everyday English is even a little bit different than the technical English, right? Yeah. Uh, for writing, uh, reading, yes. mathematics or physics. Yeah. Which I would probably say that the technical language is even easier to learn because you read those things all the time. Uh, yeah. It's kind of very standard. And for example, in Spanish and English, like words are very similar, and yes. you know you can yes. kind of piece up uh, from just knowing a few things. Yes, well, a lot of research words come from Latin as well, and then English is borrowing them from Latin, and Spanish is a Latin-based language. So basically, that collection of family of words, uh, somebody speaking English, yeah. Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, they can understand it. So what I would like to advocate a little bit for is definitely not dismantling the structure that we have right now. I don't think that's realistic, but less gatekeeping, I think would be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that a little bit less gatekeeping and a little bit more inclusivity, that that could be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh... I think something else that I talked about in the article is there were a couple of studies that 
it's hard to access the language. And let's say that we do some work within academia to try to offer language courses in institutions and make it, you know, more accessible. After you learn it, and let's say that you go to a country where you are doing your research in a language that is not your native language, there are some studies that were done for the case of Turkish students and for the case of Hong Kong scholars and uh-huh. um, students feeling like while there were undeniable advantages of, of doing research in English and having everybody having a common language and they wouldn't they wouldn't want to change that situation, they still felt like they were put in a disadvantaged position uh-huh. in the sense that having difficulty just communicating their ideas or presenting and defending their research. And I think that some of that comes also from just the academic culture of having to be assertive and confident about your research. Also, just being the one who answers the question the quickest in the class or something like that. And that is something that I would like to dismantle a little bit, you know, because I feel like that kind of thing does put international students in a disadvantage. International students or, you know, non-native English speakers, which are not necessarily international. Uh Yeah. Something that it seems that is also counterproductive in academia is when we equate capabilities of doing research with how uh, quick are you uh, responding to something, right? Yes. And as you said, this kind of feeds up on this um, imposter syndrome. Yes. Feeling that you're not adequate, especially when you're kind of starting, right? Yeah. you moving from your undergrad to thrown into the wild and you have to do research right now. And there's one or two students that are really, really quick. And perhaps they won't be the most successful researchers. We don't know. But that relationship between being really, really quick answering things and being capable of diving into a question for a long period of time, which is probably the better indicator for capacity into doing research, I wouldn't think that they're very, very well correlated or that one implies the other. Yeah, so I think it's that thing that sometimes just plays in academic culture of the most confident you are, the more uh-huh. assertive that you are, the more that, you know, you quick to notice a question or quick to answer a question, then that is equated to ability. And I feel like that's quite simplistic and it fails to see a lot of the nuances of, you know, Language is one of the reasons why you may need to think for a minute before formulating a sentence. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes that, you know, minute or extra seconds of thinking, I felt personally like I'd gotten penalized for that by just like being interrupted by somebody else, just like assuming that I didn't know what I was just trying to formulate my ideas in a language that is not my own. And I do believe that the way to deal with that currently in the current academic system that we have is not to dismantle it, but it is to deconstruct that idea that we have of, you know, the confident, assertive scientists. And I feel like it's just education within mm-hmm. universities is the way to do it. And just, you know, to foster patience and inclusion and all these values within the student body to change a little bit on what it means to be in big quotations, a good academic. Right. I think that, you know, language plays a role. It's not the main one and it's not the only one, of course. It's just the one thing that I chose to approach. Uh-huh. So the one reference that it kind of surprised me in your article was the one from Hong Kong. Yeah. Because it had the idea that probably English was more, you know, distributed and more accessible in Hong Kong. That probably it is in, in Latin America and I presume that in Turkey as well. So they still find problems, right? Yeah. 
So I'm not actually quite sure about the accessibility of English in Hong Kong. I'm not educated enough about it, so I'm not sure. It was an interesting article, the one that I linked to. The name is Problems in Writing for Scholarly Publication in English, the Case of Hong Kong. Where it basically talks about just the struggles of the students who have English as a second language, even after they have learned it. And I think that also goes to show that even if it is widely accessible, accessibility is one issue that I think needs to be addressed. But even if it is highly accessible, even if you are up to the point where you're speaking it fluently, almost like a native, there are still struggles associated with that and they shouldn't be overlooked. So perhaps this article came from a place of like, I was feeling very tired of, you know, (laughs) feeling like (laughs) I had to jump through so many hoops for a PhD admission and I was just feeling very exhausted and I kind of just wanted to see like, hey, does anybody else relate to feeling like you have to do twice the amount of work? And I feel like it did resonate with some people. I don't know how many people read my article. I don't think a lot. I don't think I had that many interesting things to say, but the few people who reached out to me that had read it mentioned that it had resonated with their experiences too, feeling like they definitely thought that doing research in English is the way to go and it is useful, but there are struggles that underlie that perhaps could be addressed. (laughs) Yes, it definitely resonated with me because I do remember like seven or eight years ago and you had to also go through all of this process and the cost is still a thousand dollars and something that i found quite funny is that i also submitted an application for mit and mit was the only one that didn't ask for jerry oh that's curious that presumably the best school that i applied to was the one that was asking me for less things and yeah. it is perhaps because they actually know that it is not a very good indicator of that. And it's, it's hindering many potential candidates that perhaps they are uh, better or they're good enough for the school and they just don't have the resources. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know exactly how the admissions work in every case or in every school. But what I heard is that the GRE is kind of just the first filter and there's the yeah. easiest, easier filter. If you're a good student, then you will have a good GRE score. And I would probably argue that's not the case because having a good GRE just tells you how good you prepare for that. Yeah, exactly. And not, um, it is possible that you're a good student and you're actually quite brilliant, but then you just show up and it's like, well, how am I going to write this, an essay about tigers following zebras? It's like, what do I care about that? (laughs) You had to prepare for that kind of Right. Yeah, exactly. It's insane. For example, I, I don't know if you took any of the subject GRE tests. Yeah. I took the physics GRE. So the physics GRE, you have 100 questions and you have 170 minutes to answer them, which means that you have less than two minutes per question to read the question and attend the question, do the math and answer the question. Yeah. Two minutes per question. So my exam was in September. So I did my first practice exam in April or May. And it was taking me two minutes to just read the question and understand the question because, I mean, it's English. It's hard. I remember the first time that I read the word wrote. I don't know what a wrote is. I had to like, Google it. And uh, um, So the first time that I took it, I think I got 700 or something like that, which is not a very high score. I think that I would go under any filter for admissions. Uh-huh. I've heard that depending on the school, less than 800, it really hinders you. And then I just practiced a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot every single day for about five months. I ended up with a score in the mid 900s, which is the one that I use for my applications. But 
I can assure you, I learned no physics. Yeah. I did not become any more knowledgeable in the physics, not at all. My knowledge didn't change, but the score significantly changed because I put on the time and resources to be able to. And not everybody can do that. For example, I could only take it once. I don't think I could have taken it a second time. And it completely destroyed my self-esteem, my mental health. Like it was just a horrible, horrible exam. And there was no change in my knowledge of physics between the first time that I took it, where I got this lower score, and the last time that I took it, where I got the score that I ended up using for the admissions. Absolutely no change in my knowledge in physics. Even then, I would say that it actually hindered my knowledge in physics because the amount of time that I spent preparing for that exam, I could have spent on research because I was working towards a master's at that time. So I could have spent that time actually learning physics, but no, I had to learn it on how to you know, navigate this like, absolutely ridiculous exam. Yeah, and um, then you just dedicate all your time to forget about your new abilities. Exactly. <laughs> I don't remember anything. What happened after I took the math GRE, I had to be very proficient at doing those integrals and things that I don't use in my everyday research whatsoever. And you just forget it right away. After the exam, you just don't know anything else. <laughs> you should know that. No, it's just, just the kind of thing that, you know, I don't know for how many years this exam has not been changed. There are a lot of studies showing how much the GRE is a better indicator of class, gender, ethnicity, financial stability, like cultural background, rather than actually ability to do research. I think that there are studies showing that Latin American students, particularly Latin American women, severely underperform everybody else in the GRE. And it's just not It's just not a measure on your ability to do research. I think even when you don't account for necessarily international students, I think Latin and Black students in the U.S. also show that the GRE scores are typically under the average ones. And so, like, when you look at the numbers, you kind of just wonder, like, the GRE is just being used as another tool for gatekeeping in academia to, you know, like, it is a racist exam. <laughs> like, using those results, it's exclusionary. I don't know. I hate it. <laughs> it's a really bad exam. I, I really hate it. If there is something that I took out from 2019 is that I would forever advocate for that exam to just be abolished in admission. Yeah. It's very hard to come up with another way to improve admissions, but at the same time, There is something to say about it because it's not, it's definitely not ideal, the situation that we are right now. Mm, yeah, And what is the solution? Well, it's probably not, not easy to come up with, but an interview with the potential candidate will definitely tell yeah. you a lot. Yeah, I don't know exactly the numbers for most schools. I know, for example, for the masters that I did in Perimeter Institute, there were about six to 700 applicants it's impossible to interview 700 people. Like, I, I understand that. I get that. Uh, so there is a big component of, of luck in the system that is really nerve-wracking. Well, I mean, that is a problem. <laughs> But in addition to that, the system is biased because the measures that are used as indicators of possible potential and success are biased measures. If you're using the GRE as a measure and usually, typically, Black and Latino students underperform, then you're essentially using a measure that is going to, to keep those students out of your program. So there is a lot that needs addressing because it is quite a nerve-wracking process to apply for admissions. And there are a lot of systemic issues, but this is definitely one of them, that the indicators of success that I'm being used are biased indicators of success. 
there's probably two uh, explanations for that. Well, we happen to apply to North American schools, right? I think in Europe, those sort of exams are not required. No, I had widely different experiences. I can just tell you a little bit about my application experiences. Just really quickly, I did a round of applications to the US and a round of applications to Europe. And uh, Europe, including the UK. So the US round of application was just excruciating. It was expensive. It cost me thousands of dollars. The deadlines, one after the other, it was just the most stressful month ever yeah. because I was just finishing my master's and also trying to just like make it to the deadlines. It was just absolutely horrible. <laughs> and I think I applied to about seven schools in the US. And then I applied to several places in Europe, including one of the Max Planck Institutes, a couple of research groups here and there, and Cambridge. My experiences between the US and Europe were diametrically opposed. In Europe, I heard back from professors who met with me, who are research interested aligned. So like they would just want to talk to me about my research interests, what I wanted to do, if I had the proper background mm -hmm. to be able to actually work in their group. It was just a lot more, you know, I want to do this thing. I have this background. I would send an email to a professor. I would just say, hey, I have this to offer to your group. Are you interested in taking me as a student? And I got several interviews back in Europe and it was just a much more, it felt much more like a much more productive process of, you know, just like matchmaking yeah. with a group that would be good for me. Whereas in the US, it was just a free for all, like throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and see if one of them stuck. And even if one of them stuck, I still didn't know which group I would be working on with. I was, for example... I apply in general for quantum information. I'm not doing quantum information at the moment, but that is just a different story. But in the US, I apply for quantum information because that was the background that I had on. The one school that I got into, it was the only one that did not have a quantum information program. So I was just completely confused about how random and stochastic was the application. Yeah. I don't know, you, you may have had a similar experience when you did it. Definitely something very similar. One of the experiences I have that I tell a lot is I have a friend of mine, we did our undergrads together. We had pretty much the same background. I would say pretty much the same abilities, pretty much the same education, everything. He applied to Waterloo and he wasn't uh, accepted a year prior to me. Then I applied and I was accepted. So it was, mm. it was like in, in my mind, it's like, why was I able to do it? And why weren't you able to do it? It's, uh, we are pretty much the same. Yeah, <laughs> I no, I completely get it. I completely get it. Jerry's course, everything, right? Mm. So there is a, an element of randomness and luck, perhaps. Yeah. Right? Probably yeah. at that point, there was no uh, professor that was able to take him on. Yeah. And I applied, there was someone. Yeah. Right? So probably there is a case to be said that complete fairness is actually quite hard to achieve, right? And that people are. Yeah. inherently biased in a way and yeah. right now we experience these difficulties or struggles with english perhaps because we happen to study in an english-speaking country right yeah but for example uh, in i did a, a master's in mexico and mm. i had some classmates from iran and they were living in mexico and trying to communicate yeah english. so i found that that was that was nice for them because, I mean, they had a, a language to communicate. And even though probably for them doing almost everything else in Mexico will be impossible, right? Because they, yeah. they don't know the language, but at least being able to communicate in English was possible for them. Yeah, definitely. There are definitely advantages of having a, a globalized language. And I feel like 
that's also why it happened, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. also why, in a way, why everybody is speaking English is because we went to the minimum energy configuration. This is the way that. But I think that my concern is that this is the minimum energy configuration for people who have the ability to do it, for people who are quite privileged. Uh -huh. Obviously, I'm not saying that everybody who speaks English as a second language is insanely privileged. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just talking about in like in averages, in, in generalizations. Yeah. So, yeah, there yeah. are definitely some cases where the access <laughs> to a new language is, is quite hard, right? And well, I mean, uh, and yeah. A, a poor family yeah, yeah, and yeah. Then you just went to a, the you know, public school uh, where there's no English courses and then... Exactly. Yeah, so those things are kind of quite hard to regulate, but something that we can probably try to ask <laughs> our native countries is that, could you please make access to English, which happens to be now the, the second language of the world, more access? Yeah. That would be very helpful for, uh, for yeah. everybody. Yes, having good programs, having good English programs in public primary schools and things like that, I think that that is definitely quite helpful. And well, there is also the aspect of, I think that the fact that English is the language that is the one that we're using should not be lost. English is not the most widely spoken language in the world. Like Mandarin, Chinese and Spanish are the two mostly widely spoken languages in the world. And we're yet not doing research in any of those. We're doing research in English. And I think that that should not be lost on us, that English is the language of the most powerful nations of the world, the ones that have the most perhaps financial power, the ones that have the, well, historically, the UK has had influence in all continents. Um, and there is a lot of bias that comes when you're doing research in that language. So I'm part of the natural sciences. I do, you know, math and physics. So I cannot talk about what changes when you're researching things like, you know, psychology or, or other social sciences in English, but there are, have been studies about, again, bias in translations, bias in studies by, of using English as the main, as the main research language. Uh, and I think that pointing it out as something to keep in mind, that's not necessarily mean that, you know, oh, we might dismantle everything and change it. Like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we have to keep it in mind. It's important to be aware of the current situation that we live in because, well, there are not only biases for accessibility, but there also seems to, like the research sometimes can be biased and the translations can be biased and the type of, you know, information that somebody chooses to translate is biased. And the fact that English is the language that we're using, that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that you didn't have the chance to touch in your article is like, what are mm. the reasons why English came about to be the the dominant? I, I, yeah. I, I was thinking... Because I, I haven't done that research either. <laughs> but I was, yeah, no, I mean, it was probably because the largest universities and, you know, important clusters of research happen to be instantiated in North America and, and England, right? So yeah. here in, in Cambridge right now, and Cambridge has like a yeah. historical tradition of high level research, right? And same for Oxford yeah. and same for Harvard and MIT. And this place went to yeah. the upper research in English. So I don't know, just... Just a guess. I think that's my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it makes sense that the places were... It's a mixture because it's not just research being done in English. It's English is the language of globalization. At that this is true, stage. yeah. So if you had to choose a second language to speak to and you don't already speak English, you're probably going to choose English because that's the one that most people are going to be able to speak of if you travel or if you 
try to access, like you say, like uh, books or, or movies or it, it is quite funny to me to watch movies about like a movie being, you know, filmed in about like a story happening in Rome or a story happening in um, Buenos Aires. But yet everybody speaks English yeah. as, if, as if that was like, yeah. you know, their natural language to speak on. So I guess that like uh, academia does not exist isolated. It happened as a language of globalization, so that extended to academia. But I think that it's also important to note that, okay, so about a hundred years back, like I mentioned before, you had English, French, and German as you know the three main um, mm-hmm. languages on which people were were publishing things, and. In about 100 years, the situation changed a lot, and technology being one of the main reasons why research can be more readily shared and why everybody is also just sort of just homogenizing the language that we're speaking within research. But situations change. I don't necessarily see this being, you know, the situation in 100 years from now, particularly with AIs and technology being able to um, it could be conceivable that technology surpasses a point where it can translate for us in real time. Yeah. For example, or it can translate uh, papers to a high degree of specification and you can actually just publish in your own language and then the repository online can just translate between languages seamlessly. Um, we are not far from that technology. That is achievable. That can happen. And and we are also not far from technology where like you are speaking in, in a particular language, but the person from the other side of the screen is hearing it in a different language because, you know, uh-huh. the translating technology got to that point. I don't think we're too far from that. And I think that, you know, in a hundred years time, the linguistic landscape is going to be very different. I think my concern is not so much with that large scale stuff. It's more, hey, tomorrow there is a student that's, you know, crying because they don't want to speak out loud in the class. Let's just try to help that. I think that we need to help that right now rather than the big structure, because the structure is sort of like, in a way, going to evolve on its own. We need big structural changes, but sometimes the underlying social things that are affecting academia, they evolve yeah. and we adapt. But I also think that like we need to make that today yeah. better. Probably <laughs> with the development of other sort of tools for translation, for example, if right now the- you have yeah. to, yeah, to yeah, read yeah. this paper in Chinese. Just plug it into Google Translate, and it sort of tells you like the gist of the paper. That is that's that's what you need to know. <laughs> like a hundred years ago, where people were publishing in German, and the English or the French speaker will have to, you know, find a translator for that, right? And if the yeah. if the language is very technical, then the translator is missing a lot of things, right? Yeah, so definitely, if we were back to publishing into our own native languages, the research and academic landscape is not going to look like what it looked like 100 years ago, because we have technology. Mm -hmm. So I think at some point, we can also think of like harnessing that more than we are actually doing right now. That's very interesting. So if you allow me to change topics, can you talk to us a little bit about your actual research? Like, what do you do? And yeah, so um, would you like me to talk about the one that I'm doing in Cambridge or the one that I did in Perimeter? So um, I'm probably more familiar with the terminology of of quantum information, but if you want yeah. to talk about your new one, then that's, that's perfectly. I can talk a little bit about the one that I did in Perimeter Institute. Uh-huh. So there I worked on quantum walks. 
So a quantum walk is the quantum counterpart of a classical random walk. So a classical random walk would be, for example, the movement of a particle in the air. It follows the stochastic trajectory. We, we call that a classical random walk. A quantum walk is the quantum counterpart uh -huh. of that. So very much like a classical walk, you have a rule of the particle will move to a certain place with a certain probability. And that is the same as the classical walk. But the main difference is that because it's quantum, the particle is not just going to follow one path, but it's going to follow simultaneously different paths with different probabilities yeah. of having followed that path. And then you have effects like interference, effects like entanglement. So the dynamics are very different. Whereas you have in a classical walk, you have a random stochastic dynamics. In a quantum walk, we have what we call unitary dynamics, which means that the whole process is fully reversible. So quantum walks are a very powerful algorithmic tool. They're not very easy to simulate in real quantum computers right now because real quantum computers don't necessarily apply quantum walks as their natural language of applying things, okay. you know. Uh, cold trapped ions don't naturally apply a quantum walk. You need to force it into the system of cold trapped ions. But they're still a very powerful algorithm tool. They have been shown to be a universal model for quantum computation, which means that if you can compute something using quantum walks, it means that you can compute it in any sort of Turing machine, in any computer. Uh -huh. And the particular thing that I did is I used models of quantum walks to try to simulate relativistic wave phenomena. So I was trying to simulate and study how to simulate Dirac fermions and interacting Dirac fermions using a model of quantum walks. What does this mean? It means that if at some point we build a quantum computer that can implement quantum walks easily, then we can perhaps simulate these sort of relativistic systems in that computer. Oh. And it also means that by studying the Dirac equation, I can learn things about quantum walks because we know so much about Dirac fermions already. We know a lot about relativistic wave equations. So because we have this entire body of knowledge about this thing that I'm using quantum walks for, I can reverse the arrow and try to learn more things about quantum walks by using this thing that we already know about. Uh -huh. So this is the main thing that I did with my master's, just study how to implement these systems. Oh, that's very interesting. So what is exactly the Dirac fermion? Because, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a particle with spin one half. <laughs> that, so, so basically there are two types of particles. Uh -huh. We have bosons and we have fermions. Okay. Um, we classify them because of a property that the particles have that's called spin. Particles or fundamental particles or elemental particles can have either integer spin, it can have spin 0, 1, 2, 3, or you can have spin goings by halves. You can have spin 1 half, 3 halves, 5 halves, etc., etc. Okay. We call them bosons if the particles have integer spin. So a boson would have a spin 0, 1, 2, and we call them fermions if it has a spin by halves, either 1 half or 3 halves, etc., etc. So bosons are the particles that are responsible for interactions, for example, for the electromagnetic force, et cetera, et cetera. While, uh, for example, an electron would be a fermion. An electron is something that has a spin one half. A proton is a fermion. So fermions are the ones that make up for the particles such as electrons or protons. So a Dirac fermion is a particle of spin one half. And why is it important that it's spin one half? When a particle has a spin one half, it means that the spin can take up two values. 
And for example, you can call these two values up or down, or zero or one, or right or left. So the quantum walk uh -huh. will be determined by the spin of the particle. So for example, if the particle has a spin down, then the particle will move to the left. If it has a spin up, it will move to the yeah. right. But because everything is quantum, I can put the spins in a superposition of up and down, and then it will move to both sides. Uh -huh. And I can construct more complicated protocols based on that. Uh, the easiest one is to think about spin one half particles, but something else that I studied is what happens if we take fermions with higher spin, if like the spin is three halves or five halves, et cetera, okay. et cetera. So tell me if I'm completely out of way. So a fermion would be then a realization of a qubit, like a physical realization of a qubit? For example, yes, uh -huh. yes. So a qubit is a two-level system. Uh -huh. It's a two-level system that can be up or down or in a superposition of things in yes. between. A spin one half fermion, you can encode the qubit in the spin of the fermion. So for example, you can grab an electron and encode your qubit in the spin of the electron. And you can say, when the electron has spin up, then that is your qubit one. When the electron has spin down, then that is your qubit zero. And then the electron, of course, can be in a superposition of spins in between. So you can encode your qubit in the spin characteristic of a fermion. Yes, you can do that, definitely. Okay. so. Because that's kind of a problem of <laughs> going back to our previous conversation is difference in languages because the language of physicists, yeah, uh, particles and uh, physical, yes, yes, mathematical objects sometimes require this level of translation to uh, something that like... absolutely good. I'm trying to become a better science communicator, but uh, I have a lot to learn. <laughs> no, I think it was great. So at at least you, I understood. <laughs> so. And then you said you're now you're transitioning to biology. Yes. Yes. So quantum information is what I worked on for the previous two years when I was doing my master's. But my PhD now is in a completely different topic. I'm studying protein biophysics. I'm studying something that is called liquid-liquid phase separation. The reason that I changed topics is I became really, really interested. I was actually quite lucky. It was a a big coincidence that the professor that is now my supervisor, she was one of the ones who was in my interview panel to Cambridge. And I remember looking up what she did and becoming really interested in her research. And I contacted her after my interview and we talked a little bit more and I, I got completely in love with the topic. So I just did a 180 and dropped quantum information to, to, to do this. So perhaps we remember the picture of a cell that we drew in high school where we like have like a big circle, which was the membrane. And then we draw like little circles inside, which was the nucleus and, you know, the yeah. uh, mitochondria and like, different things. So all those circles are sort of, we think of them as membranes. We have all like this big membrane outside and the membranes inside. But the reality is that a lot of the bodies inside of a cell don't necessarily have a membrane. Some of the bodies just create and then dissipate depending on the needs of the cell. And they are created and dissipated very much like, you know, when you put a drop of oil in water mm -hmm. and then you have this separated phase but it doesn't have a hard membrane. If you heat it up, for example, if you change the physical qualities, then it can dissolve in the water. Mm. So the cell does this with a lot of organelles inside, and it does it simultaneously with thousands of different proteins, creating these compartments and then dissolving them over and over again in a matter that is just, it's absolutely impressive. And we don't really understand how the cell can do this, 
and how can it control these compartments? Because all of these are the compartments that control, you know, like the, all the functions of the mm -hmm. cell. So this separation, this separation of having a lot of proteins together in a protein-rich phase and then a protein-depleted phase in different parts of the cell is called liquid-liquid phase separation. So what I'm doing right now is I'm learning how to simulate this on a computer to try to understand how can a cell regulate this, why does it do it, and what implication does it have for things like, for example, medicine, etc. I think something very interesting is when these mechanisms are broken, the phase that you form is not necessarily a liquid, but it is a gel because the cell cannot regulate it very well. There seems to be a link between that and neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson. So by understanding how cells modulate that, we can understand those diseases better. Oh. I thought that it was really, really interesting. And the group that I am in currently is incredibly amazing. My supervisor, she's originally from Mexico. She's a very inspiring and talented researcher and the postdoc that I'm working with as well. And I don't know, I just admire them a lot. And I really, I loved the group and I found it very, it's lovely to work with them. I really like it. Uh, so, and added to that, the fact that the topic is so interesting. I think that those two things were the ones who made me change from quantum information to something completely yeah, different. Yeah. The fact that, yeah. The group was so so impressive and so and so nice. Plus the topic being so interesting, I really loved it. Um, it kind of just sparked up again. I was feeling a bit, um, I don't know, uh, disillusioned with physics. I was feeling like, oh, I'm not sure if I quite like like. And then I just found this topic, and I just kind of like my you know energy started. I'm like, I want to learn everything about uh -huh. it. Uh, so that's the reason that I ended up changing. Yes. And probably a good environment really helps you in the transition from very, very different topics, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so in our group, I think, I'm not quite sure what are the exact numbers because I don't want to miscount, but I think usually in meetings we are, um, uh, the gender balance is, I think we're more women in the meetings than and the men in the group and I don't know things like that I appreciate the diversity most of us just come from very different places it's nice ever so often when I have a meeting one-on-one -on -one with my supervisor to speak to her in Spanish and to hear about her own journey into academia you know coming from Mexico having done a studies in in the UK and the US and it's one of the first time that I feel you know I have a role model <laughs> because I haven't really met that many Latin American women that are faculty. Um, so it's really, really nice to have such a kind and a nice role model. So like a technical question, just to have an example in my mind. So, right now you're talking about like kind of temporary organelles or something that kind of just form it. Yes. Do you, do you know yeah. any example of what are the functions? Oh, so I think, for example, one of the organelles that are like membraneless organelles, they're called P-bodies. Um, the nucleolus as well, I think it's one of these organelles that do not have a membrane. And another thing that a cell needs to do, because you have, of course, different proteins and different chemicals components inside of a cell, and they cannot all just be mixed. And sometimes you need like certain components, for example, when the cell takes something from the environment and needs to take it to the nucleus. Uh -huh. Like that transport process has to happen fairly locally. So you need to be able to form like these little packets and just like transport it from one side to the other of the cell and not just have everything in a soup. So I think that that would be yeah, the best example that I can have for it. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. Because I never heard of, of anything like that. 
Yeah. <laughs> so has it been the, the transition? Do you still uh, have the chance to continue your research in, in, uh, in quantum information? So I am currently still closing up some works from that time. So I'm still working on my free time in quantum information related things. I'm trying to finish off a particular work on quantum walks. And I would like to not completely leave it. I think that there are some nice intersections between biophysics and quantum theory that I would like to explore in the future. Mm -hmm. I think that at this time, I will probably have to focus more in learning the biophysics during my PhD. But I'm really hoping that maybe by a postdoc, hopefully, potentially, I can explore just the intersection between the two things. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I do like it. Uh, I was just, uh, I was just feeling a bit deflated. I just wasn't feeling motivated. So I think that that was the main reason that I ended up it leaving. Made you feel like that, or uh... less motivated? Yeah. I'm not quite sure. More than like, why did I feel less motivated in quantum information? I think I can answer better. Why do I feel more motivated uh -huh. in biophysics? Okay. I think that the having having a project that has such a potentially short-term direct impact to something like medicine, it's really good. And we are collaborating with experimentalist groups, which is really good. I find that like being able to like both look at the computer data and also the experimental data side by side, it's, it's very encouraging. And there are, of course, opportunities to do that within quantum information. It's just that in my case, I found those opportunities in, in biophysics. And also there is the issue of, well, I was lucky on the groups that I worked on in quantum information, of the groups being, you know, very inclusive. I had uh, Nayeli as a role model when I started, you know, when I started my master's huh. in the same group as Nayeli and she was, you know, several years ahead of me. And like, I had that role model of, of somebody that I could feel somehow, you know, like related to or identified with and feeling like I had somebody to look up to. And, but that is not the case in many groups in quantum information. And I think that I, I found that when I was applying to doctorates, I was just looking at the group compositions in different places. And I, I think I was feeling very discouraged at finding many of them didn't have any women or many of them didn't have any Latino people working in there. And I think I, I just had this really big feeling of non-belonging. Okay. And I know that that sometimes is not necessarily the topic of research. I know that that's maybe I just wasn't looking in the right places. It's just that I'm feeling better about my sense of belonging in the group that I'm currently at. And this is the thing that the group that I'm currently at is working on. And I'm very, very lucky that I like both. I love the thing that they're working on and I love the group. So I thought that it was like, oh, hidden combination. I think it is, um, it's kind of evident. Like I, I won't claim that this is true, but it seems mm. that in several schools that I've been to is that biology tends to attract more women than physics and mathematics? I actually don't know. I don't know the numbers, so I couldn't say. Yeah. I don't think that the problem with several fields in physics is that they don't attract women. They do attract women. They just don't keep women because of, you know, the leaky pipeline. And I think that that's sometimes the issue. So do you think it's, it's kind of an issue of the area? I don't know. I don't know. So my experiences are within physics and mathematics. So 
I haven't had experience in biology or in chemistry or in other areas too. So I couldn't say if certain areas of research are more inclusive when it comes to women or non-binary people than others. Because I don't know. I can only speak about my personal experience. And it is my personal experience within physics that I've struggled to find role models Mm -hmm. and people that I can feel identified with. I remember when looking for groups in quantum information, finding this huge, huge group that was doing things that I was completely interested in, that I was doing, it was really, really interested. And then when I opened the group and I looked at the people, it was like around, I don't know, 15, 20 people working in there, not a single woman. There was a dog. There was a dog listed as a member of the group, but there was not a woman. Um, There was, I think, at most one or two people that, seem to perhaps have been Latinos and that was Uh it and I remember that very very clearly because I remember just feeling so discouraged of like if you have 15 people in your group and none of them are women then he's not gonna take me like I'm not even gonna bother applying because clearly like I'm not gonna get in so did you feel that it was an indicator of your potential admission of course yes yes so I think that at the end of the day I swallowed my anguish and I applied anyways of course I didn't get in uh but I applied anyways I didn't want my intrusive thoughts to be crippling to the fact that I would but to a degree they are if you don't see yourself like I saw a phrase for International Women's Day in Science from a Cambridge professor I hope I'm not misquoting too much. I might be misquoting. Um, Professor Oliver, she said that you can be whatever you want to be, but it is really, really hard to be something that you don't see, that you cannot see, that you don't see yourself represented to. You can, of course, you can do it. You can be whatever you want to be. But if you don't have any role models or any representation, it is going to be harder. Um, I know that this is not the experience of every woman or girl in science. I know that some of them don't feel this way. But for me personally, my imposter syndrome and sense of non-belonging just increased exponentially since I left Argentina. Just seeing very, very few Latin people, um, even fewer Latin women. And quantum information, for my personal experience, was not the friendliest research atmosphere in that regard. Even though I was very lucky with, with my master groups, it was a very inclusive and diverse group. And But it was more when I was looking for PhDs that I just found it to be very, very not the case in other places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's, that's very interesting because I, I had kind of another image, from, at least from IQC, and, and that's the only place that I, I know about quantum information. Yeah. And IQC seemed to me that they really make an effort to be inclusive and to yeah, try going to the side of, of more equality or probably enforce equality. Uh, that, that's the image that I get from, uh, from outside. So I find it a little bit surprising that if it's probably not, that's not the case everywhere. And I mean, it's surprising enough because, you, you know, there's always a, uh, there's always a research group or there's always a person who has their own biases, right? Yeah. Um, Again, I think that this is a very, like a difference that I found between the US versus Europe and Canada. I think IQC and Perimeter Institute, 
they make a big effort to be quite international. I mean, well, I mean, the Perimeter Institute Masters, they explicitly admit the students from all regions of the world. They try to be, you know, admit students from as many different countries as possible. And I met a lot of people in IQC from many, many different places of the world. And when I was looking into Europe, I could see, again, that level of representation, but I just couldn't find it in the US. Yeah. So my motives of wanting to go to the US for a PhD, well, there were several. I, I think that they're the same that a lot of people, when they look into like schools that they want to pursue a PhD on, they were like, okay, I'm going to, you know, make the effort to apply to these US schools because they offer perhaps more, you know, flexibility later on for job prospects or like whatever reason. Um, so that was added the fact that my partner lives in the US. So I just wanted to say, okay, I'm going to try to live close to him. That would be nice um, if I could do my PhD in a place that is not, you know, completely isolated. But yeah, I think my experience with US admissions for PhD was not great. I'm really hoping that it'll be, it could be different for postdoc. <laughs> I'm really hoping that it's not quite like that. Um, and I'm very sure that my experiences are a one-off in a very particular moment in time of just my experience. Of course, I don't think that this is necessarily generalizable and I'm pretty sure that perhaps I could have done a couple of things differently. Although perhaps you can say that parts of your application process and several aspects of the process can be generalized and can be found can be found as patterns for other people and other experiences. Yeah. So I think there there might be things to say and and observations to make and it's, it's probably good that I mean, you speak up and... <laughs> it's hard because there are thousands, you know, there are thousands of students, international students applying from Latin America to the US and you don't want to speak on behalf of all of them. Uh, yeah. So it's just the disclaimer of this is my personal experience. Yeah. Um, I think it's important in that case because everybody has their own. And there is also, I think that I mentioned this in the article as well, going back to the language thing, but I think it applies to everything. There is a degree of survivor bias because I ended up getting into a PhD program and I was very fortunate of that. And I was very fortunate to get a scholarship and I can continue my studies, but I was very fortunate. So if we really focus on trying to fix the things that I have struggled with, well, they might not be the things that need fixing because in the end of the day, I managed to get into a PhD program. There might have been a lot of people who didn't that are facing a systematic problem that we're not seeing because we are only talking to people that actually made it into academia. So there is that survivor bias that we need to be aware of. Yeah, that we think uh, well, we made it so it's perhaps possible. It's, it shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I keep hearing like people saying something like, oh, we have spoken with uh, this female Nobel Prize winner. And she says that she hasn't faced any discrimination based on sex in her life, in her career. And then I think of like, yes, that's great. But she's saying that she didn't face any. She's not, she's not saying that there is no any, that there is none. And also, perhaps that is the reason that she actually made it to, you know, be such a successful person. So perhaps we should address, you know, the hordes of students that are facing sexist discrimination. And, and yeah. So I think that, yeah, it is really important when we talk to people to remember that sometimes the luck that they have to have made it to where they are. Um, yeah, some people may be facing like certain difficulties and yeah. we don't really know. And hopefully we are all honest 
to the actual difficulties that we are facing. And I don't know, it, it seems to me that in many cases, are, some of them are amplified to a degree that it's just red herrings from the actual problems, right? It's like, uh, I'm not following. I think sometimes certain difficulties that have been expressed by groups of people are maximized. It's not that they're not there, but they're not that crippling. Like it's something that you can, you know, uh, work uh, oh, um, and hi. And that probably is a distraction from other more serious problems, right? Like if, for example, someone is facing discrimination for actually their gender, because there might be cases where the supervisor is or the environment is very toxic towards uh, women, like uh, the group mm. probably, if that's the case, then that has to be addressed. But I think we should just be very honest to to say what actually is our experience and not to take our experience and try to make it like a, like something that is not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think I'm following you that much on that one. I think that within academia, when people who come from marginalized or underrepresented groups are talking about their struggles, I don't think that our first instinct should be to say something of like, oh, but are you, are you actually suffering that much? It should be the other way. It should go to saying like, like I don't know, just taking them seriously and like, not thinking that they're exaggerating by thinking that they are. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. So it's it's more like giving the benefit of the doubt. It's like, uh... Well, I mean, not necessarily the benefit of the doubt. I feel like if somebody is complaining that they're having a hard time in academia, believe them that they are having a hard time in academia. I don't think anybody's just piling up suffering just to maximize, you know. No, okay. I, I'm having a hard time expressing myself. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it makes sense. It is a delicate topic because I think sometimes, I mean, they're politically charged conversations, so it's hard to even express the opinion that you may or may not have and because it's very easy to put it into the wrong context. Yeah, but the thing is, I think it's very important to remember that academia is not a bubble. Academia exists within social political context yeah. and anything that affects society outside that context, like sexism, racism, homophobia, will affect academia. I think that sometimes the problem with academia is because it's so structured that those things are hidden and that those things are not, um, they're hidden systematically. They're not necessarily blatant, but they're still there. So I think that sometimes a lot of people from marginalized groups in academia can feel that they're struggling, but it's really hard for them to point the finger in exactly what's the thing that's making them struggle. Mm. And I think that it's because of all these underlying systemic things that are hard to point to and address but i think that we need to point to and address mm -hmm. okay if that makes any sense yeah so when you say they're hidden what's in your mind like well i mean by hidden i mean things like for example the metrics for admissions uh -huh. i think that if you have a metric for admission i think we talked about this earlier on if you have a metrics for admission like the gre which is expensive so expensive that you are putting in a better position students who can take it several times versus the students who can only take it once. That it's so time consuming in a non-useful way because it's going to take you all this time, but you're not actually going to learn anything. So you're putting again in a position of advantage students who do not have to work when they're pursuing the degree versus students who do have to work versus pursuing that degree. Um, a lot of the times, so you have unpaid internships, like research internships in universities or like 
internships that are paid less than the minimum wage. And not every student can afford to take up that opportunity. So you have students who are struggling financially that have to go get a different kind of job outside of the university versus students who have the financial power to be able to take up this internship and they will keep climbing the academic ladder because they had already the privilege enough that they could afford to not have to work in a different thing. And in that context, intersectionality is important because often there are marginalized and underrepresented groups, the ones that would struggle financially, the ones that need sometimes to work a second job, the ones that the ones that are like the first person in their family to ever attend a university. So you perhaps do not have the support or the advice that you would need back at home. Like my personal experience, my father did a PhD. So I can talk to my family about research in research terminology and about my struggles and they understand what I'm saying. But that is not the case for somebody who is a first generation student. So all of these things are sometimes tied as well with your financial, cultural context, your ethnicity, where you're coming from, your nationality, your gender, that we need to see it all as a whole, like a whole package. So whenever you have metric of admission that is obviously biased towards people who have more financial stability, mm -hmm. that is already bad. But it is not just people with more financial stability. It's going to have a gender component, an ethnicity and a race component, etc., etc., because of all of these things not existing in isolation. What you just said resonated a lot with me because my parents never studied like beyond middle school. Right. So all, all the advice I got was like from friends and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, professors or things like that. So in a way, that's pretty lucky, I think, is when you have a person that kind of opens you another world and say like, oh, look, this is something yeah. you can achieve that actually puts you several steps ahead, right? Just to realize that you have another chance. Yeah. Probably as, you know, individuals and I mean, we can't really affect the system like and just fix it up you know mm. we can just affect what is around us probably what we can do is to emulate yeah. something like that it's like well you know be the role models for the new generation that is coming because i mean there's there will be a yeah. lot and say like well it's going to be hard yeah. and it's uh it is a struggle and even though you you can probably think of other solutions but right now it's, it's probably not uh, not the case you have to go through perhaps Yeri and Tuffle and just do it. <laughs> Find the means to do it and fight for it. And yeah, it's, it is a shame that we'll have to be subject to processes that are kind of visibly flawed. <laughs> mm. But I think we can start by, you know, motivating someone to actually try it. And I think most of this is also by luck. So luck is a really, really strong component. Uh, probably probably also strong as privilege. Yeah, luck is definitely a strong component. I think that my point was that luck is also very, very biased yeah. with underlying yeah, privilege. Yeah. Yeah. So The probability is not quite uniform. <laughs> there is a bias. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. It's not a level playing field. So I think that my, my goal is just to try to, you know, just encourage to be empathic within academia to be open and inclusive and to try to reach out and to yeah, yeah you know like what you say like be role models like participating in mentoring programs i think that that's really important 
yeah, it's something that we can try to contribute to our countries back home. Hopefully, yes, yes. Uh, I I miss I really miss Argentina. I, I haven't bet, been in a I, while, and now with the pandemic, with this pandemic, it's impossible to come back. Yeah, but I bet you some good asado. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm trying to eat vegetarian, but but I must admit that I do miss it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we we can't just deny that. Uh, yeah, that's that's not. I'm not gonna try to deny that. No, <laughs> but but yeah, there are several really really good vegan alternatives that taste exactly the same. Really, you know. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. They're very, they're widely available in the UK and Canada. I think that it's less uh, less accessible in Argentina. Oh. But but while I'm here, I'll just eat those. <laughs> I've tried, I've tried the, uh, some vegan alternatives, and I know yeah. I wasn't very convinced. <laughs> probably, probably, probably think about, um, this is not me. <laughs> this tastes different. But I think that like like sometimes. It's good when somebody cooks it for you and doesn't tell you oh, that it's not meat, and wow. then, and then you're like you're like find out and like oh, but it's actually really delicious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, plant based. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's just about getting getting creative. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been a pleasure. To thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I hope I didn't feel much your ear. I've been talking for a while. I'm sorry. It's very interesting and uh, and you know the kind of conversation that I'm. Uh, I really appreciate them and uh, I appreciate that you were very open thank to you. have this talk and thank you. tell us your opinions. Thank you so much. I, I thank you for, for the opportunity to let me to let me speak about it. <laughs> no, not coming. I think it's invaluable. Well, yeah, another time. Okay, another time. <laughs>